Well, thank you, Marcus, for <clears throat> praying for us and reading the scriptures. Thank you, Julie, for your <clears throat> testimony. We thank God for your salvation, and we're delighted to have you join our church. We look forward to many years of fruitful labor in the Lord together. Praise God. Thank you. Well, before we begin our study, I want to let you all know about a great opportunity to serve, a great ministry opportunity. As you all know, um, God has really granted to us as a church a, a deep and abiding love for world missions. On a grassroots level, um, this past year, 2003, 25% of our giving has gone to missions. Our hope and our goal is to make that 51% uh, go off to missions. We are sending six teams to missions this year. Marcus and I will be leaving in three weeks to, to Kazakhstan to do a scouting trip uh, for our summer Kazakhstan team. We're sending a team of nine to Czech Republic, a team of four to Ireland, and a team of six to Kazakhstan this summer. And then in October, we'll be sending a team of three men to teach at the Bible Institute again at Kazakhstan. We are working with some wonderful and godly missionaries. The Coyles in Ireland, actually Tim Coyle, will be speaking at our church in two weeks. Um, two, two weeks. The Smiths in the Czech Republic, they'll be here this summer, and Peter Smith will be preaching at our summer retreat. We're supporting the Penza Orphanage Ministry, and now, if God wills, we'll be partnering with uh, Pastor Bahatshan Mukashev in Kazakhstan, in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Now, with the prayer and manpower support comes the administrative work that is needed to make sure all of this runs smoothly. Uh, we have a mission support ministry that is currently run by Miss Elaine Cho. And with the growth of our involvement in missions, this ministry is in need of some faithful workers who are personally committed to God's work abroad. The mission support ministry needs workers who will take care of oversight, the administrative oversight of our finances, prayer cards, newsletters, <clears throat> care packages, and overall support for our beloved missionaries. We ask that each of you prayerfully consider um, partnering with this ministry, this all-important ministry. Um, if God inclines your heart to serve in this capacity, we ask that you would talk to Miss Elaine Cho. Okay, well, let's go to our study in John chapter 12, 20 through 26. You know, I, I, I hear often, and I often meet many sincere and devout Christians through my interactions in, in the world or as I speak at different churches or as people visit our body. I meet very many sincere believers who are often wrong about foundational Christian doctrines. They are mistaken, they're confused about many truths concerning the Christian faith, concerning the character of God, nature of salvation, 
Doctrines of grace, like total depravity, unconditional election, perseverance of saints. I meet many believers who are wrong about the charismatic gifts, and so on and so on. I mean, many of us, myself included, were in that category. We have a consistent influx of believers coming to our church. And though they've been believers for many years and attended church for many years, they tell us, this is the first time. I've studied these topics or learned these truths. And so for me, it's understandable. I do not fault them. These doctrines are difficult. They require deep study. Unless someone has had the privilege of sitting under sound teaching or they've had, uh, they've been, uh, had accessibility to biblical authors, it is understandable for me that many well-meaning believers that they would have distorted understanding of these doctrines. But there is one doctrine that is misunderstood by many believers today, and I am hard-pressed to understand the reason for their confusion. I am hard-pressed why so many sincere believers misunderstand and have confusion concerning this doctrine. It is because... It is so clear in the scriptures. The Bible is very straightforward. It teaches this directly, repeatedly, throughout the scriptures, and that is why I am perplexed. The doctrine in dispute is the doctrine, the teaching of the Bible about discipleship. About discipleship. It is, I believe, the very heart of the Christian life. There seems to be great confusion in the church about what it means to believe in Christ. What it means to follow Jesus Christ. Confusion about what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a disciple. Great many professing believers today have a wrong view of the Christian life. They ascribe to a kind of Christianity that is foreign to the scriptures. There are many names for this type of Christianity. You can call it easy believism or non-lordship salvation or the seeker-sensitive gospel. You know, at the Shepherds Conference, I was talking to a pastor and he was very discouraged because a key family left his church. And the, the family left, and the reasoning behind it was, they believed the church was too radical, too intense. The church required too much commitment. <clears throat> they, they were asking too much of them. They went to another church that was far less demanding. So I asked the pastor, well, what do you guys ask of your members? And he said, we request that our members attend worship, attend Bible study, serve the church, and in their personal lives, personal relationships, evangelize the lost. And I said, what else? He said, that's it. And I said, isn't that the normal Christian life? He said, yes, it is. But for this family and for many families like them, they were asking for too much. For them, this was too high of a commitment. Unrealistic. Ridiculous. 
It is um, too demanding. Well, that is the mindset of a majority of professing believers in Orange County, California, is it not? Pastor John Stott has observed that, quote, in the church today, a chorus of many voices is chanting in unison that I must at all costs love myself, end quote. An anonymous writer wrote, quote, The cross of popular Christianity is not the cross of the New Testament. It is rather a bright ornament upon the bosom of the self-assured and carnal Christian whose hands are indeed the hands of Abel, but whose voice is the voice of Cain. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemns. The new cross assures. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. This new cross encourages it. The old cross brought tears and blood. The new cross, it brings laughter. End quote. There is a new kind of cult in America. A movement where in the church, the self is center of the person's life. The self is placed in the throne of the person's heart. And even in the church, instead of Christ being esteemed, man is esteemed. Used to be cults in America were more intense They would add to the gospel more works. There was a clear hierarchy of authority, a clear identity. This modern cult, what I call the cult of casual Christianity, cult of man-centered Christianity, is the opposite. It is less intense. It is less works, maybe no works. There is no hierarchy, no defined authority except the authority of self. Instead of adding to the gospel works, they've taken away from the gospel. They've ripped the gospel apart. Taken away the holiness of God. Taken away preaching against sin. They've removed from it any mention of repentance in the church. It is a cult because it is completely antithetical to historical Orthodox Christianity. It undermines salvation doctrines. Now, it is not a monolithic movement like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. There is a varying degree of departure from the scriptures depending on the believer or the professing believer or the church. But at the core, I believe, it is a cult nonetheless. And it is very popular in the world today. As we look at church history, the casual Christianity we find so popular in America today, this mindset was completely foreign to early Christians. You open up any church history book and look at the church in the first four or five hundred years. And for them, there was no misunderstanding about the doctrine of discipleship, about the heart of the Christian life about what it means to be called a Christian, what it means to profess Christ, what it means to follow Christ. There was no confusion, no misunderstanding. Let me read to you an account of one of the earliest women martyrs on record. read this this week. A lady named Perpetua. She was a high society believer at the turn of the 3rd century, 
We know of her martyrdom because of her diary and by an account by another prisoner. Perpetua was a Christian noblewoman who lived with her husband and an infant son in Carthage in North Africa. Emperor Severus determined to cripple Christianity because he believed that it undermined the Roman Empire. He focused attention to the city and among the first to be arrested were five new Christians who were taking classes to prepare for baptism. It was their version of the FOF class. They arrested five and one of them was Perpetua. Her father, who was not a Christian, immediately came to the prison. He begged her to deny her faith. He pleaded with her to deny that she was a Christian so that she might gain her freedom. She replied, I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian, end quote. In the next days, Perpetua was moved to a better part of the prison so that she could breastfeed her son, nurse her son. With her trial approaching, her father visited again, this time pleading more passionately, quote, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father. If I have favored you among your brothers, above your brothers, if I have raised you to reach prime of your life. He threw himself down before her and he kissed her hands. And he said, do not abandon me to be the reproach of man. Think of me, think of your brothers, think of your mother, think of your child. Who will, who will care for this child once you are gone? Give up your pride, Perpetua. Perpetua was touched but unshaken. She tried to comfort her father by saying, it will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. She wrote in her diary, a few days later we were lodged in the prison and I was terrified as I had never been before. What a difficult time it was. We were paraded in front of the crowds every day. The heat was stifling. And then there was the extortion of the soldiers. And to crown all, I was tortured with worry for my baby was there. there. These were the trials I had to endure for many days. Then I got permission for my baby to stay with me in prison. At once I recovered my health. With my baby with me, the prison became to me a palace. One morning I woke up, my son was gone. And we were suddenly hurried off for a hearing. We arrived at the forum and a huge crowd gathered. On the day of the trial, Perpetua and her friends were marched before the governor. Each of Perpetua's friends were questioned and each in turn admitted to being a Christian. And each in turn refused to make a sacrifice to the emperor. Then the governor turned to question Perpetua. At that moment, her father, carrying Perpetua's son in his arms, burst into the room. He grabbed her by her hand and he pleaded, Perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your son. The governor, wishing to avoid the unpleasantness of executing a mother who was still nursing an infant baby, added, Have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. Perpetua replied simply, I will not. The governor asked her, Are you then a Christian? She replied, yes, I am. He condemned Perpetua and her friends to die in the arena. Perpetua, her friends, were dressed in belted tunics, 
when they entered the stadium, wild beasts and gladiators roamed the arena floor and in the stands, crowds roared to see blood. They didn't have to wait long. Immediately, a wild heifer, a heifer charged the group. Perpetual was tossed into the air and onto her back. She sat up, adjusted her ripped tunic, and walked over to help her friends. Then a leopard was let loose, and it wasn't long before the tunics of the Christians were stained with blood. Finally, they lined up Perpetua and all her friends, and one by one, they were slain by the sword. This was a common sight. Christians were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. They understood what it meant to be a Christian. It means to obey Christ, to follow Him. The early church was replete with heroic accounts of those who died, who gave their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. Tertullian said, because there were so many martyrs for the faith, he said, torture us, kill us, Mow us down. When you kill one Christian, God will raise up two more. The blood of martyrs is the seed of a new church. These accounts condemn the modern day casual, easy, comfortable Christianity as an aberrant movement, not as a Christian movement. Such a casual Christianity was unthinkable to the early church. There is no kinship of this movement with Christ our Lord. Not only was it, is it foreign to the early church, it is foreign to the Bible. It is foreign to the words of Christ. Matthew 10, 34-38 Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father, mother, more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me daily is not worthy of me. Matthew 10:22 All men will hate you because of me. Luke 6:22 Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man. James 4:4 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with this world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of this world has become an enemy of God. Look at the example of Apostle Paul in Acts 20:24. 20, he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. The elders of Ephesus pleaded with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Do you not know that they are ready to kill you? Paul said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Revelation 12:11, talking about faithful Christians who gave their lives to the cause of Christ, 
says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And listen to this. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Brothers and sisters, it is clear from the Bible that the life of denying oneself and carrying the cross and following Christ, no matter the cost, is the normal Christian life. That's the normal Christian life. It is not a work above and beyond the call of duty. It is not extra credit. It is not radical Christianity. It is not a life of a disciple as opposed to a life of a Christian. No. The Bible plainly teaches us that following Christ the life of denying oneself. Carrying the cross, it is pursuing death of ourself. Following Christ means placing Christ above our parents, above our husbands, wives, and children. That is the normal Christian life. What the world considers shameful, the cross of Christ. For the believer, we have genuine admiration. It is our delight. It is our heart's cry to chase after death by following Christ. These heart-stirring truths is again taught to us plainly in John 12, 20-26. And the context is so appropriate because our Lord had just entered triumphantly to the city of God, Jerusalem. There are thousands of people crowded around Him laying down palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. They're ready to coronate him as their king. They're ready to pick up their arms and defend the cause of God's kingdom by overthrowing the Roman oppressors and going off to war. They're ready to make him king of their country. And Christ tells them, my kingdom is not about life. My kingdom, it is about death. It is about suffering. It is about service. Let's go to the text. In John 12, verse 20, Christ is in the city, in the temple of God. I believe this happened after he cast out the money changers for the second time according to Matthew 21, after he cast out those who are, are, are selling animals, and then the, the lepers and those who were sick came to him, and Christ healed them. After that, I believe, there were some who went to worship at the feast who were Greeks. Verse 21, they came to Philip, asked him, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip together went and told Jesus. Now, these Greeks were Greek converts to Judaism. These are Gentiles who had given up their idol worship, and they've been won over to the worship of the one true God, the God of Israel. Though they were followers of Judaism in every way, even then, there was a clear separation between Gentile Jews and ethnic Jews. Regardless of these Greeks, their devotion, their length of commitment, they and their children were forever separated to a second-class level in, Ju in Judaism. 
in the temple of God, there was a court of Gentiles, and they could not progress any further. They could not enter further into the temple of God. Well, these Greeks desired to interview Christ. They hesitate to approach Christ directly. They ask Philip to act as an intermediary. Now, this Philip is not the Philip of Acts 6 and 8. He's the deacon, the evangelist. This is Philip the Apostle, one of the twelve who was from Bethesda of Galilee. Philip is pressed to represent them to Jesus. And Philip goes to Andrew that they might together represent these men to Christ. Now, John does not record why these men want to meet with Jesus. We're not, we can't be certain what their intentions are what their agenda is when they approach Christ. But by the Lord's response, we can safely say they're asking about following Christ, right? You know, it's like listening to someone on a phone conversation. You're listening to your friend talking on the phone, and by his responses, you can kind of gather what the other person on the line is saying, even though you don't hear his voice. Likewise, by hearing Christ's response, we can somehow ascertain what the questions are. So no doubt, they're asking about following Christ, about serving Christ, about being disciples of Christ as well as the others. And I would venture to guess that they had a wrong idea about discipleship. I mean, they see these masses of people crying out to Jesus as King. They see Him triumphantly entering the city of God. The mass of people ascribing their loyalty to Christ. I mean, undoubtedly, they were excited and they were expecting an earthly kingdom to be established. And so they're inquiring, maybe uh, they're submitting their resumes, inquiring that if they might have a position with Christ in His earthly kingdom. So Christ answers them in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To dispel any misunderstanding, our Lord immediately speaks of His death and resurrection. In John 7.30, John said His time had not yet come. John 8.20, no one sees Him because His time had not yet come. But as He enters the last week of His life, Sunday morning, he says, but now the time has come. The designated time, the season in which the Lord will enter the dark valley of his most intense suffering. It is a kind of horrific and indescribable physical and more importantly spiritual suffering that has never been experienced in the history of the world will be experienced by Jesus Christ. In the temple, surrounded by thousands of cheering, uh, cheering people, our Lord can see, He can smell, He can taste death because it is so near. And He talks about the time of His glory being near. And He understands that His glorification will only come through His suffering and His death. So He says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When our Lord says, truly, truly, he is denoting the great importance of what he's about to say. It's an emphasis by repetition. You know, you want to really listen to what I'm saying because this is important. This is true. And he introduces it with the subject of his death. These men had seen his triumph. They thought he was about to establish his kingdom. He told them, yes, his time of glory is near, but not in the manner in which they expect. He will be glorified through his death. Our Lord here illustrates a great scriptural truth by a very familiar fact in nature, that in plants and seeds, life comes by death. The seed must be put into the ground. It must be buried. The seed must rot. It must decay. It must die. Then and only then will it bear fruit and produce a crop. If the sower loves the seed so much that he refuses to bury it, if he refuses to let it die, then he will never reap any harvest. That's what our Lord is saying. The sentence was primarily meant to teach these Greeks the true nature of our Lord's kingdom. If they wanted to see a king like the kings of this world, they were greatly mistaken. Our Lord would have them know He came to carry a cross, not to wear a crown. He came not to live a life of honor, a life of ease and magnificence. No, He came to die a shameful and dishonored death. Our Lord came to set up His kingdom that began not with the coronation, but with the crucifixion. He came to establish it not with gold and silver, not with a military victory, but with the death of its king. This sentence teaches us a wide truth. That the mighty foundation of Christianity is the death of its king. And only through our Lord's death is there harvest, harvest of eternal life for all who believe in him. Verse 24, 23 and 24 was about himself. In verse 25, he turns his attention to these Greek Jews and to all, to all those who would follow him, all those who would profess allegiance to him. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does it mean to love life? What does it mean to hate life? Love for the world means anything that hinders us from loving Christ. Christ is saying, if anyone loves this world, if anyone loves his life, to the point where it hinders him, it prevents her from pursuing Christ, he will lose everything. He loses everything. If anyone hates his life, considers all things rubbish compared to Christ, then he will gain eternal life. We see this in the example of perpetuous martyrdom. No doubt she loved her father. No doubt she loved her friends. No doubt, she loved her young son. 
but not more than Christ. She loved Christ more. Love for her family did not hinder her from her obedience to Christ. She considered her life, her family, nothing compared to following Christ. Pastor J.C. Rao says this, He that would be saved must be ready to give up life itself, if necessary, in order to obtain salvation. He must bury his love for the world with its riches, honors, pleasures, and rewards with a full belief that in so doing he will reap a better harvest. He who loves his life so much that he cannot deny himself will find himself at the end that he has lost everything. This truth ought to sink deeply into our hearts. It must stir up some self-examination. I beg of you, as your pastor, to listen carefully. To do away with your fiddling for a moment. To put away the church bulletin. To refrain from any distractions right now that war against your mind. I beg of you to fully focus your minds this moment at this gracious yet unyielding truth. Christ defines discipleship. And He says, if you love your life more than me, you will lose everything. Only those who hate His life will keep it for eternal life. This is true. It was truth for Christ. If He loved His life more than God's will, and he refused to die, there will be no harvest. Only because Christ himself died, only because Christ himself died, there is eternal life for us. That is the same for us. If we love this life and refuse to die, there can be no eternal life. Only if we are willing today to die to sin and crucify in our hearts all that is most dear to us, Unless we do this, we cannot expect any benefit from the death of Christ. This is the greatest fruit of one's own salvation. This is what puts assurance in the assurance of salvation. Loving Christ above ourselves. Let us remember this. And actively take up the cross daily. Taking up our cross means daily putting to death our selfish desires. It means daily putting to death our ambitions of the old self, our Lord nature. Taking up our cross daily means dying to our self-seeking, self-centered desires. It means living not to please ourselves, but to please Christ above all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote, The cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ, 
when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow Him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man before Christ. Our Lord moves to verse 26. And talks about what it means to follow Christ. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Not an option. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If we profess to serve Christ, we must follow him. That's why Christ asked in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? If you call Christ Lord and you don't follow, you don't serve, you don't obey, you will hear those awful words in Matthew 7.21. Who are you? Never have I known you. You are never my disciple. You were all along deceived. You are following yourself. You are not following me. To profess Christ as Lord, to profess yourself as a servant of Christ, it means to follow Christ wherever He goes, to be where He is, to be with Him. Well, to close our time, I just want to focus on two challenges to discipleship. You know, at Cornerstone, we talk about discipleship a lot, following Christ a lot. I want to just focus it on two specific challenges that we have today to follow Christ. Because this cult of easy believism comfort-driven Christianity, pop Christianity is the mainstream. It is a challenge for us to follow Christ, to be a faithful, passionate follower of Christ. You have to have a heart ready for battle every day. You must be thick-faced. You must be resolute in your heart to no matter what, follow Christ. The faithful Christian today faces two specific challenges. First, opposition from fellow believers. Secondly, opposition from family members. First of all, opposition from fellow Christians. Casual Christians, perpetually immature Christians, do not want other Christians to follow Christ. Because it exposes the bankruptcy of their Christianity. It rebukes them. It challenges them. It happens to me when I see other believers, when I see missionaries following Christ, denying themselves. It it rebukes me. It makes me uncomfortable. So my sinful pride wants them to slow down, wants them to relax, wants them to be wants them to be a bit more casual. So I would look like a better Christian. I would be more comfortable. Well, this is a threat to all of us. 
There are professing believers who are not growing, who are not in the Word, who are not praying, who are not passionately pursuing Christ. And so, by their example and by their words, they're hindering others from passionately pursuing Christ. Instead of maturing as believers, they're discouraging other believers by their regression. They are growing not towards maturity, but towards immaturity. And it's a discouragement. It's a wrong example. You know, I, I would akin it to seeing our daughter Elizabeth grow and mature. It's an encouragement for us as parents to see her walk and run and learn new words and take care of herself and help mom around the house. It's so discouraging where at one point she starts to regress and she forgets words, forgets to help. She can't run any longer. She can't walk. And she becomes more and more immature. Well, that's the reality of many professing Christians. They're not stagnant. They're regressing. That's our Christian culture. We are surrounded by professing believers who are permanently plateaued or permanently regressing. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you must follow Christ. He must be your vision. He must be your standard. Not a pastor, not a missionary, not other Christians. The person we follow is Christ of Scripture. He's who we follow every day. Secondly, second opposition is from family members. Starts at home. They are opposed to you following Christ, risking your life for Christ. Uh, If you know our church, you know we encourage husbands to love their wives. We plead with the wives to love their husbands. We plead with every member to love their home, to be at home, to honor their parents, to love their parents, to love children, love their children. But at the same time, Christ calls us to love Him more, to love God more. And that, that ought to start at home. Instead of being a hindrance to one another, husband to wife, wife to husband, brother to sister, among siblings, parents to children, we ought to inspire and spur one another on to greater discipleship, to greater self-denial, to greater sacrifice. Now Marcus, a few months ago, lent me a book on Christopher Love. He was martyred in 1651 for his faith. In July 14, 1651, his pregnant wife, Mary, wrote him a letter. Her final letter before his execution. I read this letter with my wife this week. And we said, this is how Christian husbands and wives ought to spur one another towards following Christ. Somewhat lengthy, but we Please, please listen to what she says to her husband who is about to be executed for his faith. She wrote, 
I hope you have freely given up your wife and children to God. God said in Jeremiah 49.11, Leave your fatherless children. I will preserve them alive. Let your widows trust in me. I desire freely to give you up into our Father's hands and not only look upon it as a crown of glory for you to die for Christ, but as an honor to me that I, that I should have a husband to leave for Christ. You leave but a sinful mortal wife to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. And if natural affection should begin to arise, I hope that the spirit of grace that is within you will quell them, knowing that all things here below are dung and dross in comparison of those things that are above. When you are putting on your clothes that morning, think this, I am not putting on my wedding garments to go to... I am now putting on my wedding garments to go to be everlastingly married to my Redeemer. And though it may seem something bitter that by the hands of men we are parted sooner than otherwise we might have been, yet let us consider that it is the decree and will of our Father. It will not be long before we shall enjoy one another in heaven again. Remember that you may eat your dinner with bitter herbs, but you shall have a sweet supper with Christ that night. Farewell, my dear. I shall never see your face more till we both behold the face of our Lord Jesus at that great day. Your love. As fellow believers in the family, we ought to be like Mary, encouraging, spurring, stirring one another, towards a more faithful walk, faithful following of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we are lovers of this life. We confess that our hearts are corrupt and sinful and prideful above all. And we desire to preserve our life, preserve our comfort. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit to grant to us a greater love for you, that we will love you more than life itself, love you more than our family, any attachments to this world. Lord, that we would joyfully, for the joy set before us, we would carry our cross daily, knowing that you go before us. May we bravely go against the popular trend of Christianity of our culture. We would lay our lives down, lay our glories down at your feet and preserve the doctrine, the life that was handed down to us from the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.